A biologist wants to study the genetic makeup of an organism. A pharmaceutical researcher wants to test the effects of an experimental drug. These types of experiments require a deep knowledge of the scientific domain as well as the lab techniques to produce the data that will eventually yield a scientific result. Transcriptic is a robotic biology laboratory that allows you to make requests for experiments to run remotely. Scientists who use Transcriptic do not have to perform wet lab experimentation. The robotic laboratory process has the potential to do for biology what Amazon Web Services did for computing. So I was really excited to do this episode. Max Hodak is a co-founder of Transcriptic, and he joins the show today to explain how a robotic laboratory works. There are a wide variety of challenges from hardware integration to software reverse engineering. But we also talk about why it is worth it to overcome these challenges, including a discussion of the reproducibility crisis that is undermining the faith of our scientific experiments. I hope you enjoy this episode that is a crossover between biology and computer science. And as I have been saying, I would love to do more of these types of episodes. And I appreciate to Transcriptic for reaching out and uh, organizing this episode. If you have ideas for shows about the cross-section between biology and computer science, or any other show ideas, please send me an email, jeff at softwareengineeringdaily.com. Max Hodak is a co-founder of Transcriptic. Max, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thank you. Transcriptic is a robotic cloud laboratory. What does that mean? So we have a robotic facility uh, near San Francisco in Menlo Park that scientists use over the internet. So we have a, a robotic um, laboratory here and a set of software APIs that you can use to control, to task those robots. Um, the idea is instead of having your own lab space or buying any equipment, which is what you have to do to, to do biotech research, um, you can just go online, attach a credit card and, and use our, our remote facility. Kind of like in the in the 90s, if you wanted to build a software company, you'd have to build out a data center. Um, and then in the early 2000s, you were still racking servers. But now you can you can just rent time on the hour by the hour on Amazon Web Services or Google Cloud. Um, it's a similar type model for 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 drug discovery and synthetic biology. The idea here is to automate things that are done manually in a biology lab. At least right now, it's mostly biology. I think. Let's take an example of that. I worked in a plant biology lab in college. I spent a lot of time doing PCRs. Explain what a PCR is. So uh, the polymerase chain reaction is a way of amplifying a lot of uh, DNA. So you, you'll start, you'll synthesize a, a little sequence called a primer, which will recognize some stretch of DNA in a, in a template, like maybe from the genome of a plant. And then you can add some enzymes, and it runs, and what's it, it becomes a chain reaction to exponentially amplify uh, the a target sequence of DNA. So let's say that you know that there's a gene um, in the plant genome, and you want to um, make, uh, and you want to isolate that gene and get enough copies of it so that you can you can work with it at the types of volumes that that humans can manipulate, not single single molecules. Um, so the so PCR will will let you do that. It'll make billions and billions of copies of a piece of target DNA. PCR is a well-defined task, but it is mostly done by humans today. Why is PCR a good candidate for automation? Well, so I I would say that it's, I mean, it mostly is automated today, even mm. in your own lab. So that there's a couple different things here. The first is uh, robotics and biology. The second is what it means to automate something like PCR. And then the third is what's the transcriptic model is more than just automation. It's about enabling like labless, like in the same way that you have semiconductor foundries and then fabless chip companies. The There's a big shift, which is not just automation. It's in part automation, but there's another big shift of getting to remote on-demand biotech experimentation, which is beyond automation. So for example, if you're a software engineer, you can live in San Francisco, you can live in New York, you can live in Iowa. When you move, you can keep you can often keep the same job um, if they let you work remotely. But if you work in a, in a in drug discovery and you're a scientist and you move, you like you really can't do that. Um, so it's the, the model of transcripting is about more than just automation. When so when I think about why does it make sense to automate PCR? Well, I mean, 
there's a good argument that PCR is automated. Um, we the in order to run the polymerase chain reaction, you have to um, sick like you have to heat samples and let them cool and heat them and let them cool um, many times. And the in the beginning, this was done by moving samples between uh, water baths of different temperatures. Um, and now it's mostly there's a, a box that sits on a bench and it can be in your own lab and it has heat um, heat element elements and can cool things and it'll do that automatically. Um, so in some sense, it's already very automated. Um, now there's no robotic arm moving samples from the QPCR from the PCR machine to an incubator or setting up your experiment um, pipetting. But I'd say that PCR individually is is often highly automated already, as opposed to in the old days when you would be moving tubes between water baths at different temperatures. Though there, so there is a diff though between what the lab technician is doing in a typical university laboratory environment with a PCR machine and what Transcriptic does with a robotic arm that is doing that type of work. Can you yeah. explain the diff? Yeah, so it's a lot of it is about the integration of how it's put together. So I guess there's a couple of different ways to answer this. The first is just in, in what way does our lab look different than the lab at a typical university? And that answer is there's, right, so there's a lot of robotics around integrating the devices there's robotic arms that will move um, the samples between the instruments um, from incubators or refrigerators to PCR machines or to pipetting robots for liquid handling. Um, and that's, we have uh, these large shipping container sized units that we call work cells, um, and there are no humans inside. So that's, it's, that's quite a bit, it's really a fully robotic, like little laboratory area. Um, the, um, Another, another way to think about it is in the way that we interact with the lab. So in, at a university, a scientist will think about what experiments they can, uh, they, like they'll have samples, they'll go operate in the samples, or walk up to the bench, and they'll be taking notes in their, in their notebook. Um, there's many kind of game time decisions that need to be made. Um, by being fully robotic, transcriptic forces the scientists to think about a lot of these questions up front and define the protocol in much greater detail um, than, than we typically do working by hand. Um, there's a lot of things that uh, our humans will interpret, such as, um, say, shake the, the sample until there's a color change that robots can't really interpret. So you have to define the method in a lot more detail, and that changes the way that the, that the scientists interact with the experiments and contributes to a lot higher reproducibility. So the work cell that you're describing, I've seen pictures of these it is like you said it's like a shipping container but it's like transparent and inside it there are machines like a pcr machine and pipette trays i don't remember the terms for these things and then you have a robotic arm that is doing a lot of the work and then there's like a computer terminal on one side of the work cell is there somebody who's operating the computer terminal that can intervene if the robot is doing something wrong or if there's some kind of task that requires a human to resolve the ambiguity how much human oversight is required in that in a typical work cell exper experiment um so once something's on on the work cell it's there's no further human intervention unless there something goes wrong um there's no resolving ambiguity it, by the time that the work cell accepts a set of instructions to execute them, there's all the ambiguity is gone, all, all of the resources are available, everything is clear. Um, there is an operations team that, that runs the work cells. Uh, the, the general flow is that customers submit requests through a, a, an API or a web interface. That goes to operations that then figure out how to schedule everything. And then they'll assign, and then in scheduling, the requests will get assigned to specific pieces of hardware and specific work cells. And then the operations team will, will make sure that all of the samples are in the right place. So for example, we have very cold, uh, offline freezers, not connected to any work cells. So if samples need to come out of one of those offline storage systems, the operations team will retrieve it, um, give it to the work cell and the works will operate on it. But during, while an experiment is running, uh, there, there's no human intervention unless there's, um, uh, there, well, there should be no human intervention. So explain some of the other things that are in a work cell and what kinds of experiments those modules allow. 
Uh, it really depends. So it's a, a one of the key ideas behind Transcriptic early on was that even though there's a huge range of experiments, um, they it's a relatively small set of devices. So there's you can do a huge range of exper- experimentation with just liquid handling, incubators, PCR, plate readers, um, like sealing, desealing, um, flow cytometry. It's uh, not all that many devices. So the the main ones that we use, the main analytical instruments, I would di- I would divide it between uh, liquid handling, logistics, and detection. So liquid handling is a big topic. It, we have several different types of instruments that are dedicated to just uh, combining or splitting or rearranging samples, which is uh, really important and really and surprisingly complicated. Um, and then there's a bunch of inst- devices that are logistics. So they will do things like you'll need to seal a plate of samples with foil before you put it into a PCR machine because you're going to heat them. And if you don't seal it, you'll evaporate the samples. Um, and then at some point you will, you'll want to remove that, that foil seal, or you'll want to put caps on tubes or remove caps from tubes. Um, and the third category is detection, which are the most interesting devices. Those are things like quantitative PCR or um, plate readers that will measure uh, uh, fluorescence values or how much light will tr- pass through a sample Flow cytometry, which is a kind of mind-blowing instrument when you really understand how it works, which will uh, be able to sort individual cells into different containers based on the properties of the cells. Um, There's a variety of imaging. There's uh, We have a new device that we've recently integrated called a mesoscale detection instrument, which is, uh, I don't fully understand the operating principle, but it's uh, much more sensitive. It allows us to do much more sensitive assays that are similar to what you could do in a plate reader, but um, with much higher signal. Walk me through the process of submitting a job to transcript it, because the ideal is I'm a remote researcher somewhere and I submit something to transcriptic, and yeah. they, you, a transcriptic is the back end for my experimentation. So walk me through the end-to-end process. So typically, for most of our customers, the way that this works is you come to us and you say we want, that you want to run some type of experiment. And then our application scientists will work with you to implement that as code that can run on Transcriptic. Um, it, it is possible to do that entirely on your own, but typically our applications team will work with the customer to implement that method. And then uh, we'll give them either a, an API endpoint for making a request to run that experiment, or scientists will log into a, a web interface at secure.transcriptic.com and select the that ex, uh, a little card for that experiment in the UI and, and set the parameters uh, in, in a GUI. Um, then, so whichever, so whether you're submitting it programmatically or submitting it through the web interface, that then creates a, a run in a, a state which is I think it's it's a needs review although that's mostly done automatically now so it would immediately look like it's accepted um, that goes to an internal dashboard of uh, the entire run queue of everything waiting to be scheduled um, once it's scheduled it'll get a start time and be assigned to specific hardware and then as it starts running the users can follow along in real time um, like what instruction is running on what instruments with monitoring data and other feedback and all the analytical results as they uh, as they come back. Um, it's possible to configure webhooks to get pinged whenever something interesting happens in a project. Um, and then when a run is done, it can it'll can trigger another webhook so that you can take action based on that automatically. Um, and that's I mean that's the basic flow. You mentioned drug discovery as one example of a type of experiment. What are some of the other types of customers that Transcriptic has, and what are the typical jobs that they're uh, submitting? How does it fit into their workflow as a corporate entity or a university entity? So uh, most of our customers these days are are big, big drug companies or medium-sized drug companies. Um, it ranges from new assays that they want to try out. So there's a big trend towards outsourcing in general. Um, I mean, outsourcing isn't, I mean, we... We think of ourselves as a, a little bit different than the the old school contract research market, um, but there's a lot of 
virtualization, a lot of outsourcing that already happens in this industry. And, and we can do it, uh, we can onboard assays much faster. We can do things uh, more cost effectively and at higher quality. Um, so it fits into the, these existing outsourcing flows that a lot of these companies already have. Um, the stuff that I'm most excited about is thinking about how do we enable uh, more like enabling drug discovery with greater degrees of machine learning and, and bigger data sets and learning from the data and, and thinking about data sets rather than thinking about um, what you can do at a bench and experimentation. So there's a culture shift that's going on here from if you got a PhD in chemistry 10 years ago, you would do functionally no math as part of that program. And now there's uh, like data science is beginning to creep into drug discovery, whatever that means. Um, and it's becoming a much more kind of, it's always been, they, you, if you talk to a, sci- a researcher in drug discovery, they'd tell you that it's always been quantitative. But the, the bar for what that means is increasing uh, a lot. Well, so what is the cycle for, sorry to interrupt you, what is the cycle for a machine learning feedback loop? Is it you synthesize like a drug virtually and then run it against a simulation of a human body? Or is it more like you synthesize the actual drug, give it to some people, and then take the data from the people and then use that to serve as the next uh, wave of data and then you iterate? like that or give, give me an idea of the iteration cycle for the machine learning process so it really depends and you're definitely not doing these things in humans uh, you one of the reasons drug discovery is so hard is because you obviously aren't working in humans when you want to test out like a, a molecular structure idea and the models that we have aren't necessarily reflective of the human biology um, including simulation like we don't have very good simulation of a lot of this stuff um, we have we do have some tools that um, but they uh it takes a lot of understanding to, to think about the limitations of those simulations and those models. Um, so one of the one of the big challenges here is that it's extremely expensive to to sample. Like you don't have and saying in autonomous vehicles, uh, a self driving car will generate terabytes of data per hour. Um, so you, it's a very data rich environment. Um, in drug discovery, it's relatively data poor. I mean, we're lucky that we have a very um, strong history of strong tradition of good public databases. Um, so in the U S uh, NCBI, the national center for biotechnology information has some large publicly available data sets. Um, in Europe, the European biomedic Inf- bioinformatic Institute, EBI has some large data sets. Um, there's large data sets within drug companies. Um, but they it's still relative to the size of chemical space or the complexity of biology. They're still extremely sparse. Um, so this is, a classic, like expensive sampling problem where you want to think about things like Bayesian optimization and deep learning. Like the, one of the drawbacks of deep learning is that it requires a lot of data. So you have to get much smarter into things like the more recent advances in, in one shot learning or finding other ways to bootstrap or uh, augment your data set. Um, and it's some of this is cost. One of the best ways to generate, to bring down the cost to um, generate larger data sets is to bring down the sample volume because a lot of the cost here is it's not necessarily the cost of the, the devices or the robotics. It's the cost of the reagents. Say so if you need an enzyme or a cell, that can be very expensive. So you want to work in smaller and smaller volumes. But this means that you need much, much more sensitive liquid handling. And so there's interactions there. Um, and then even if you can bring down the sample cost, you still have uh, fairly long biological time constants, especially in this and the time scales that we're used to in software, where if you want to do an experiment, um, it might take three weeks to run a, to run cell profiling assay because that's uh, that's how long it takes for the biology to happen. And there's really not much that you can do to accelerate that. So you have to get um, you have to put a lot of thought into how the machine learning works, and it's um, it's complicated. Now, I'm sorry, maybe I missed something, but what is the model that you would be testing a drug? against here? Would it be a mouse or would it be some uh, uh, agar solution with uh, with cells just sitting on top of it? Or how exactly does that testing work? All of the above. Okay. It really depends on at what phase you are and what you want to understand better. Um, so in the process of medicinal chemistry, there's a suite of maybe 50 assays that you care about results from at, at some point in the process that you want to optimize for. Um, a lot of these are in vitro, so there's in in uh, dishes. Um, others are going to be 
in in small animals. Um, others eventually you'll have to do larger animals to support uh, a case to the FDA about why they should let you test this in humans. Getting back to some of the engineering, I, I, I want to come back to the discussion of drug discovery and the the broader industrial implications. But just to talk some more about the engineering, some of the aspects of transcriptic are these off-the-shelf components, PCR machines, for example. Some of them are not, like I think the robotic arm you had to build That's yourself. Build yeah. So what's um, – give me an idea of the integration process because I've seen the videos of this <laughs> this robotic arm interacting with these machines that you bought off the shelf and I'm thinking probably these machines did not have like all have like beautifully well-formed APIs and you probably had to do some hacking to open up the interfaces for some of these machines yeah. you, you have no idea <laughs> um, it's yeah, so typically when you buy these machines, they come with a Windows computer that's running some Windows GUI tool to control it. And that uh, they, most of them have put no thought into becoming, into being programmatically accessible. Um, it's already fairly restrictive um, in terms of the devices that are available to us and those that have motorized lids or motorized access. Like that's, not many PCR machines have motorized lids, which is like, kind of a deal breaker for if we want to integrate it with robotics. Um, so once you narrow it down to the d devices that are considered automation friendly or automation ready, um, it's still extremely, I mean, I remember that for the, the QPCR machine specifically, the format of the data when it that it returns to the host computer, um, it wasn't encrypted, but it was pretty close. We ended up, um, uh, like it wasn't encrypted. It was just a really weird uh floating point encoding, basically. Um, and it took us almost six months to figure out what was going on in that data blob. Um, we ended up uh, using a genetic algorithm to evolve a functional form that uh, ended up, like, like it, it ended up being a, a, an obscure formula for representing the, like, um, a, a ratio of a couple different physical quantities that it was measuring. And we had to use a genetic algorithm to to figure that out. And then once we saw it, it got close. It didn't, the genetic algorithm didn't give us exactly the right solution. But once we saw the, the form it was taking, um, it, it clicked for us about what, what the device was doing. But, but why can't you just ask the device maker? I mean, now we're more likely to do that. That was <laughs> earlier on when we were smaller and vendors didn't talk to us. Um, often they don't know. Often this is code that's firmware that's handed down over generations. And, um, the authors of that are long gone or we aren't able to get to the right engineers in, in these big companies and only a couple people will work on that or they won't want to tell us for like whatever reason. Um, it's, there was one, there was, uh, so we bought a centrifuge at one point and we'll build a lot of devices, but we decided that a centrifuge wasn't going to be one of them just for safety reasons. Um, and the, we thought, oh, well, this will be easy to control the interface. The API for a centrifuge can't be too complicated. And it turned out that the device itself was really just a collection of motors and it was doing all of the motor, con the motion control in the Windows software. And it was using, it was a, ser uh, it was a serial bus device, like an RS-232 device, except it wasn't actually doing RS-232 serial. It was just using the, co like the copper wi wires in that as a CAN bus. And so there's like all kinds of terrible madness going on here. Uh. Um, and so rather than re-implement that, we, we went and talked to the vendor and they ended up giving us the source code to their uh, GUI tool so we could strip out the GUI and then just use the motion control C++ code underneath and recompile it for Linux, um, just on the condition that we signed an NDA and, and agreed not to build a centrifuge. <laughs> now, this suite of archaic machines that you're dealing with, are these machines getting better? Are, are there companies out there that are working on next generation PCR machines with better APIs and stuff like that? Or do you kind of feel like you're alone in wanting to revamp things? No, there definitely, I mean, there's definitely progress. It's, I'd say that one of the reasons it's so difficult for us is because there aren't that many people that really want to automate at this level. Um, so the, the bulk of the market for these devices are people that have benches or have lab space. And so the idea of controlling it programmatically without Windows in the stack, that's a fairly uncommon use case. Um, so 
there's there's progress happening on three fronts. The first is just in terms of the instruments and, and their fundamental capabilities. The second is in the software to integrate them. And then the third is or software to control them in general. And then the third is to, to integrate them with robotics. And there is progress happening in all three. Um, I've spent a bunch of time talking to Thermo Fisher recently, which is doing some of the most forward-thinking work on this, where uh, their their next-generation PCR machines and, and other instruments are like uh, they have a big internal theme around IoT and cloud connectivity, so that you can follow along the progress of a Thermo iPhone app, and it connects to Thermo Cloud. And so those types of APIs are are going to become much more helpful. Um, it's not perfect. One of our requirements is that. Uh, all of our infrastructure can run offline, even if we uh, lose connectivity to, to uplink um, to the outside internet. Um, and so their APIs require going through, they phone home and you you command the device via cloud API, which which doesn't necessarily work for us where we, um, m- maybe if we had the, spent the money in trenched fiber to our, to our building, it would work better. But right now we need to be able to tolerate inter- um, transient connectivity losses, but it's getting certainly a, a lot, lot better. Um, on the question of are the devices getting better in general, like are you getting next generation qPCR machines and are those capabilities getting better? Um, oh yeah, definitely. There's, I mean, PCR is, there's, there's some ways in which I can get better, like uh, more simultaneous, uh, we would say colors, um, but that's, that's fairly incremental, but especially on the liquid handling side and, and on things like mass spec and flow cytometry, there are always improvements. The episode that I've done before that re- that this conversation is reminding me the most of is this one I did with a company, I think it was called Vistaprint, and they have this, uh, it's an older company, it's like f- 10 or 15 years old, and what they do is, you know, you, you go into their web portal and you submit like a t-shirt design, and then they print out a t-shirt design for you, and it's like highly automated, but they have to integrate with these like printing machines, autom- you know, automated printing machines, uh, and they they just described the process of building these layers of software on top of it to make the APIs easier to deal with, and that process is not something that you have to do in a lot of typical software companies. Like a lot of the software companies I talk to, it's like, yeah, we're building a Ruby on Rails app, and there's complicated microservices architecture, but there's no building of a of a layer to make hardware easier to deal with because the hardware system is you know built with yeah. like older APIs can you give me a description of how the engineering process goes how you have teams arranged and how, I mean how people assemble because it's it's a very unique company um so I'm just yeah, curious I'll, how the, how I'll the say structure that this isn't I mean uh, I'll say that this isn't totally unique to hardware um like okay. Uh, financial services is often similar. Like oh, I heard a yeah, rumor at point. one point that like the Wells Fargo, like shiny web app interface still just underneath eventually reduces to screen scraping an old COBOL app. And right probably FTP servers. Yeah. Um, but so there's some pretty horrendous stuff in like any big legacy industry, but um, so it's not totally specific to hardware, but I mean, it is hardware is um, particularly challenging and there's, the, the short answer is that it slows things down. Like there are, there are real costs and frictions associated with it. Like you have to run more of a process. We have, uh, we run water, more of a waterfall process around things that interact with, with hardware. And um, that includes device integration to some extent, just because the, the costs of failure are higher. They always say internally that we can either uh, plan perfectly or we can make failure cheap. And we don't have a history of planning perfectly. So we try to make failure as cheap as we can. And I think that mm-hmm. this is the theme of a lot of SaaS companies is when failure is very cheap, you don't need to plan v- very much. You can move very quickly. You can try stuff out. Um, so all this stuff, when you have very high costs of failure because your timeline is very long, um, then you have to take more of what would be seen, I think, as like an older school or um, like more conservative approach to planning and, and release. So we have a hardware team, which typically plans over four to six months time horizon. There's really not a lot that we can do to make that go faster. And we've been trying. Um, and there's a software team which runs weekly sprints. And when they interact, typically you have to match the longer time. You have to match the longer time constants. Mm-hmm. Um, you, there's all these interesting failure modes that I've learned a lot about over the last couple of years. Like I, I don't know if you're familiar with the idea of a, a Buxton index. No, I don't know what that is. So it's, uh, 
Edgar Dykstra gave a speech back in like the 70s where he was talking about how um, this idea of a Buxton index, which is that it's the time horizon measured in years that an organization plans over. And when you have two entities with very different Buxton indices, like a startup might be have a Buxton index of 0.5 and a university might have a Buxton index of, of 5, then eventually this is something that's going to break down. Like the small organization will accuse the the bigger one of like dereliction of responsibility and not caring and dragging their feet. And the big organization will accuse the small one of being reckless and like not thinking things through. And like, and it's even though both sides are being well-intentioned and earnest, like this like leads to problems. So we, we've put thought into like matching this and, and it just means that you have to run more of a waterfall process. Um, and so then there's people will pull off the, the software team and join like a, a little group that will put together to do integration or work with hardware, um, which runs on a more traditional process. Yeah, because that so that's very interesting that you have some cross pollination to reduce the silos to perhaps spread the empathy. Um, it sounds like you have a really wide variety of roles that are necessary for this company too. Like I imagine you need biologists and hardware experts and software engineers and lab yeah. technicians. That's, that's really one of the main challenges. I mean, you're always worrying about like when you're at a startup, you're always worrying about things like burn rate and overhiring and growing too fast and making sure that you're not like like it's it's a it's a careful balancing act in any startup and. We, we look at this and we're always wondering, because you hear all these stories, like YC is always talking about, oh, these, these startups grew too fast, they hired unnecessary people, they let their burn rate get too high, you keep burn rate down. And we look at it and it's like, we're, we're almost 40 people and like every single one, like we're, and we're still very understaffed because you have so many different disciplines, we have such a broad surface area. The company in general has an extremely broad technical footprint ranging from like novel hardware to integrating other hardware to maintaining things, uh, like maintaining hardware to our uh, infrastructure software, web, um, all the plumbing that connects that, monitoring, um, application science. Um, there's some novel biological development that we do in, internally around uh, optimizing assays and optimizing experiments, um, sales, marketing. Um, operations. So there's this huge footprint for the company um, in terms of what we have to, to do. And that's, I mean, often you end up with, with a 40 person team, you end up with like critical roles having really one person in them, which is often stressful. I'm sure it's stressful, but the alternative of growing too fast with a company like Transcriptic, I mean, growing slow doesn't seem like a problem for a Transcriptic, uh, you know, because it's not like I think you probably have a pretty big moat in terms of um, how hard some of this stuff is to even get yeah. a little momentum going. Oh yeah, no, it's um. So you'd rather go slow than yeah. fast. Yeah, it's just I like. There's a, a lot of people talk about lean startups and testing things out, and it, you know sometimes sometimes you have to run a fat startup. Sometimes that's like if if SpaceX had tried to start with one million dollars, I don't think it would have gotten very far. So. It's a very different model. Totally. And um, I mean, I think this is what some people uh, underrate about the like zero to one. Like I, I, don't, I think zero to one is a really good book about startups. And it, it kind of says, you know, like a lot of the things that we like the dogmatic things about lean startup or whatever cycle times and stuff, those ideologies were formed in a purely web environment and the things are really changing as you like when you go to the hard tech side of things that your idea of cycle times and hiring and uh just how you do different processes really have to change i think yeah that's right that's right and i think that people in software don't always really appreciate the the, the advantages that they have there and people especially with how now there's um growing attention of like hard of like deep tech startups, people will look at that and say, oh, that's really cool. You have a lot of robots. So that's really cool. You're doing this like stuff that feels real. And then they'll be very attracted to it. And they won't necessarily appreciate that you lose a lot of these natural advantages that you have in software when you come over here. And it's, and you have to put a lot of thought into how you execute and how you manage through that because it's, you have, um, because it has all these, like, I, like, I, I, it was either Ben Horowitz or someone had a quote saying like, hardware is called hardware for a reason. It is hard. <laughs> and um, it's, 
it's but if you can do it if you can navigate it's like in it's like in biotech um it's very hard to get a drug to market but the people that can navigate that kind of uncertainty for those time timelines um it can be uh extremely rewarding For somebody listening who is just purely familiar with software, I don't know what your background is, but did you just kind of like learn hardware stuff where you needed to, or is it possible to do that? Like, are people unnecessarily intimidated by hardware? It's, I, I wouldn't say that they're unnecessarily intimidated by, intimidated by hardware. I would say that it's not, there's no magic here. That's, it's, I mean, biology, biology can be a little bit magic. And I blame this on, I put this at the feet of evolution, but um, for hardware, for any engineering discipline, it's, it's not, none of it's magic. On the other hand, I'm not the hardware expert at Transcriptic. We have a, a very good hardware team, uh, many of whom originally came from Willow Garage, um, some of whom have PhDs in, in applied robotics. Um, and so I, I think if it was, this was like, Max learned hardware, picked it up, and then tr- tried to build Transcriptic, I don't think that would have gone very well. But I've certainly been able to learn enough to, to manage a lot, like, uh, put it together, but it really relies on having the right people uh, on the team in the right places and, and not me trying to go in and, and do it myself after like learning how to program, or, like do some firmware. Um, so now that we've talked a little bit about the engineering, I want to talk in a little wider scope, like why Transcriptic is important. And I want to start from the angle of the reproducibility crisis. Explain what the reproducibility crisis is. So the reproducibility crisis is this just empirical observation that uh, many published studies cannot later be reproduced by other scientists. Um, there in general aren't, and there's lots of complex reasons for this, but in general there, uh, there aren't big incentives for reproducing the work of other scientists because your career doesn't advance by doing that. Your career advances by publishing novel publications and uh, moving the field forward, and there's not funding available, there's not time available to, to check other people's results. And there's generally a big assumption of good faith in that when something appears in nature or cell, it's probably legit. And it usually is. There's the reproducibility crisis. I don't, I don't think is evidence of widespread fraud or, or malfeasance. And I don't think really many people think that it's just that biology is very, very complicated. And sometimes small changes in your reagents, like a cell line, um, which might be imperceptible to us, will influence the results of your experiments in ways that make it very hard to do apples to apples comparisons across time and across labs. And even when you can get, uh, when you can reproduce something because you want to build on an earlier result, this can take months of back and forth of talking to the other researchers to figure out exactly what happened because there just isn't enough detail in the published papers to really understand what they did. Mm. Um, and this is very, very common. And, and it's not, it's not, um, like uh intentional or it's not like negligent it's but the way that we describe our experiments in natural language like english is just it it really does a poor job at capturing all the details and we see this when a scientist when scientists come to transcriptic and they say okay i know what my protocol is because i've done it a whole bunch of times it should be no problem for me to encode it for transcriptic to execute and then they really quickly see that there's just all these details that they have to now make explicit that they weren't thinking about before um, and that's like it's a big mindset shift and a big learning curve. So yeah, okay. So this an- this this ambiguity in the natural language protocols. This is what the hypothesis that Transcriptic talks about, and that's why Transcriptic started this thing called Auto Protocol, which is a formal language for specifying experiments that removes some ambiguity. But you know, I I, I don't know. I'm curious. Do you really? Do you really feel like that this there's not um, like an incentive problem here? Because, um, I mean, even if the reasons for non-reproducible work are not malicious, um, the fact that there is such a crisis that like it, it, it seems it seems like there's there's some problem with incentives here. Like why why hasn't academia worked this out earlier or why hasn't industry worked this out earlier because the incentives around what causes a lot of people to do science end up being things like status or pushing out a drug or pushing out some kind of chemical that you put in food 
it is a lot better in industry than it is in academia, um, in part because the incentives are different. The incentives in academia, like your careers really advance based on nature papers and science papers. And so the emphasis is on doing, uh, is on getting those papers out. Um, and that's how you get more grants and that's how you get more prestige. And, um, and then there's really no time available to go through and like reproduce other people's results. So, um, the, so that's very deeply ingrained in, in the academic system. In industry, uh, there's, you have more of a ground truth correction here in that if the, it, in order to get a drug to market, the science has to be really solid all the way through. And that's not to say that we have perfect understand, like the industry is better at understanding the science. It's in, in many approved drugs and most approved drugs, we don't actually fully understand how they work. Um, but the experiments done along the way are typically done to a higher bar, although they're often simpler um, than the ones being done in academia or at which they're doing at what academia was, was doing some number of years ago on more established chemistries now. Um, so the, the incentive misalignment in academia is, is really deeply rooted and very complicated. Um, I don't really know the best way to address that. It probably requires innovation in, in the funding system. Um, it's going to be interesting to see what happens to public funding of science over the next four to eight years. So I, th- I think it's also possible, and some people are definitely going to disagree with me on this, but to I think there needs to be a change in the narrative around academic science because I think there's really a certain valor that people have around doing academic science. But from my point of view, academia has become mostly this zero-sum game. You've got fewer resources. You've got less leverage. There's a more arbitrary structure than there is in industry. There is something deeply broken about the way that science proceeds in academia. And if you want to make effective process, progress, you have to escape to industry. Am I wrong about that? Is there still... I mean, is that is that too strongly worded? Um, yeah, I don't know if I would make it that black and white, but okay. it's, I mean, certainly for every, I mean, this, I, I don't know exactly what it is, so don't like, uh, I, I, we should probably look up the statistic, but it's for every 10 PhD students, there's something like one faculty position. So clearly there's like, you know, this pigeonhole problem here where you just like, clearly the vast majority of people being trained as scientists are not going to be going to academia, but it makes, but they, but most of them want to like. I'd say that the bulk of people, at least the majority, if not much, like more, much more than that, of people that go through grad school want to be academic scientists. Um, some percentage just aspire to go into industry, but, but most aspire to faculty. And so this creates an extremely intense competitive environment for um, getting the requisite publications and, and scientific track record in academia to um, be competitive for a faculty job somewhere. Um, and... It's, I mean, why this is so, like, as you put it, like, so broken, it gets to just how we value and um, pay for things that don't have immediate commercial, um, like, commercial potential. Um, this is just long-range science, and this is something that, which is poorly valued by the the economic framework and system that we live in. Like, there's um, a direct correlation between how close you are to a transaction and how easy it is to monetize your service. So, for example, in stock trading and in hedge funds, you're very close to the transaction, you're very close to the money, and it's very easy to pull off a couple percent. And so, you kind of so hedge funds and Wall Street are direct gamification of finance, which like it's easy. To, it becomes very easy to make a lot of money, um, or at least have access to that potential. Whereas the further you get away, like once you start getting into investment banking and like you start getting further removed, it gets harder and harder um, to like have lots of money. And by the time you get to academic research, you're so far removed from what the our economic system, like how it re- like what it rewards, that it's um, it becomes a very deep problem in in the funding structures of of how we fund and, and how we appreciate science as a as a society in this country. Um, NASA clearly very valuable, but you can have lots of, you can have extended arguments like political arguments with people about whether NASA is valuable and whether how we get value out of the research that NASA does and whether that there's value in sending people to, to the moon or to Mars. Um, and that I think is really eventually, if you follow that far enough, that's how you get to the incentive systems that we have in academia. Certainly the idea of basic science is something that we want in our society 
it does seem like some industries are catching up to the idea of basic science as a long-term bet. Uh, I mean, certainly Google does a lot of like, quote, basic science in computer science, but I guess this like getting from a quote, basic science discovery in computer science to a product is not that slow of a cycle time in computer science. It's probably a lot slower in biology. I mean, Google does a lot of, a lot of good uh, research. Um, So they should get credit for that, including things that aren't directly, um, directly commercialized. Hmm. Um, This is more common in, I mean, it's, it's common in software, but it's also common in, in biotech. Like there's a lot of really good research that goes on at Genentech and Amgen and and Biogen and and like in, in industry. This is research Um, that looks like basic science research. Oh yeah. They publish, um, they publish interesting papers all the time. And a lot of it is like, is somewhat applied, but they're doing, I mean, they're doing really high quality research also. And especially in the beginning, like if you look at the beginning of Genentech and the research that they were publishing on recombinant DNA, I mean, that almost counted. I mean, it was clearly with a view to apply it, but they were doing high quality research. And there's a lot of high quality research that happens in industry. Um, in general, the, I found like a rule of thumb is that when something really works as an industrial application, um, the the pace of research in industry just really quickly begins to outpace academia. Um, mm. And like there's like, there aren't people that really do uh, the, just the quality of applied research or of, of research in, let's say aerospace in uh, academia versus industry is not really comparable. Mm. Um, and there's, I think something is going to, you, you're going to have a similar mechanic in the life sciences over the next 20 years. Um, but it's uh, yeah, it's very complicated. Well, okay, we're running up against time here. Why, how is transcriptic going to change this reproducibility crisis? Talk some about auto protocol, this idea that you can have a formal language for specifying experiments that is not ambiguous. Um, Give me some of the picture of how transcriptic would change this. Yeah, so I'd say that, I mean, there's obvious things like the repeatability you get from robotics and the reproducibility you get from uh, having this formal way of specifying your experimental methods will substantially help with reproducibility. A lot of it is also having controls and um, understanding in-process variability and in-process drift um, so that you can know as you're running these processes over time and stuff changing and stuff staying the same. Um, A lot of the mission of Transcriptic is not just reproducibility, though. It's I, I really believe that in order to to do well at, at drug discovery and and just biotech in general in the future, it requires a, a, sh- a reorientation from thinking about these are the experiments I'm capable of doing to what are the data sets that I need that I want to gather and generate to answer my scientific questions and moving uh, drug discovery from you know, this artisanal experimental uh, process to more of a data science. And like I mentioned earlier, this is limited by, on how expensive it is to, to generate data sets and the time associated with generating data sets. But if we can reorient the problem a little bit, so now scientists are coming into coming to a laptop and saying, this is the data set I want to gather that would most efficiently advance my scientific question and abstract over a lot of the execution details. And they can work at a much higher level of abstraction. So now the scientists are, are being trained on on machine learning and statistics and, and modeling and systems biology instead of exactly how to dis- define parameters to run PCR just the right way, um, then uh, I think that will really accelerate the field. So the, the transcriptics mission is to, to turn biology into an information technology from an experimental science. Um, so reorienting the scientists from thinking about what can I do at my bench to what are the data sets that I'm working with? What's the modeling that I'm doing? How do I understand these complex diseases? Yeah, that sounds awesome because I know people who work in biology research, and it's not just that they have to know the theory of how does a cell work and what kinds of experiment would I want to run. They have to know how do you engineer the experiment, which is like a lot that's like full stack. Yeah, no, there's there's a lot here. And I mean, and this is a lot of this is moved forward by tools. Like I one of my main personal theses is that science really advances by the availability and power of tools. Like in many ways, I I, I can make an argument that uh, the difference between uh, just direct like the difference between being able to directly measure and observe what you care about and 
uh, where we are now. That like the, that gap is science. Like when you can't directly manipulate it and perturb the system, then you have to get clever in, in how you access it, and that's kind of what we think of as science. If we had a magical microscope that could show us in atomic detail what was going on in a cell and we could grab onto atoms and drag them around, then we wouldn't really need to do what we think of as science a lot of the time because we could, like, we could, like, we'd have all the information. Um, and so I think that tools are, are extremely critical. Um, and making the tools more available and more powerful is extremely important. What are some of the procedures that still cannot be done with transcriptic? What are the big bottlenecks that you're focused on right now? We're, so when we started, we were focusing uh, more on synth- like synthetic biology as opposed to drug discovery. So this is working more in bacteria or algae and uh, designing uh, like synth- metabolic pathways, so designing genomes to run interesting reactions. And we've refocused away from that onto drug discovery. So now we're working on things like thinking about how do we automate uh, cell culture and tissue culture and um, bringing on different types of detection instruments. So that's uh, that was one of the big changes that the company's undergone over the last year or so. Um, and in, in that, there's a lot of instruments we don't have. Um, we don't have uh, NMR. We don't have mass spec yet. Um, so there's a, there's a lot of instruments to bring in and a lot of capabilities to add. And bringing in a new instrument means... It, it depends, right? So, if it's, <laughs> so for uh, the, to take the mass spec case... That is, it's a couple months and hundreds of thousands of dollars, um, typically. Um, For something like if we wanted to do NMR, nuclear magnetic resonance um, spectroscopy, then, I mean, this is, it's, that's a totally different game. You need a um, magnetically isolated room and a uh, liquid nitrogen or liquid helium source, and uh, you can have no metal near. I mean, it's, it's a much bigger undertaking. We're not going to be doing that in the short term. Well, Max, this has been really fun talking to you, and I find Transcriptic a fascinating company. If your team ever has any interesting announcements or you guys want to come back on, feel free. Very interesting topic. Sure. Thanks for uh, talking.